All right, thank you, Hannah, for reading the scripture for us, and thank you for doing the announcements. There is one I am particularly excited about, and that is our sixth annual Fall Family Night. It's coming up here, and it's going to be on Halloween this year, on October 31st. Um, we're going to do our trunk or treat, just like we always do, bounce houses, food, inflatables. It's this awesome opportunity for us to serve the neighborhood, to get to know the neighborhood, to love the neighborhood, share the gospel with the neighborhood even. And so uh, it's an awesome time. And we're partnering with Park Place Church of God. We love them. They love us. We love each other. There's unity in the body of Christ, and we're glad to do it together. We're going to do it on their property uh, because, A, we are uh, anyone who claims and proclaims the gospel of Jesus is one church. But additionally, it looks like they would be doing one about the same time we would be doing one naturally. So instead of two churches trying to convince the neighborhood to come to two different things, us versus them, we feel like it'd be a better witness and a better testimony just to do it together um, on their property. Now, of course, if, if they, they've already said yes, and it looks like everything's all systems go, um, if anything does happen and they need to switch or anything, we'll just do it in our regular field. Uh, so it's on either way, but it's going to be cool to partner with them and to do it with them at their place and um, to just be able to be one body serving one neighborhood in the name of Jesus, one gospel and one God. And so uh, we're excited about Fall Family Fun Night. We do need you to volunteer, and there are sign-up sheets, and, and we need trunks. I want a lot of trunks. I want to go all out. We want to show Poe Mill how much we love him and how much we care. The, these events have usually gone almost too well in the past. In fact, I have been told by Pastor Josh not to you know, use Facebook advertising and all these things to get you know, hundreds and hundreds of people there, just the Poe Mill neighborhood. Last time we did a, a block party, um, we took some names. We were like, because we were giving out those backpacks. And so we had a list of names and numbers and emails. We had people sign up to get the backpack. And we had people from like Simpsonville, right? Like Spartanburg. I was like, I'm just telling you, just so you guys know, there are churches in Simpsonville and Spartanburg, like hundreds between there and here. And we're glad to serve you if you come, but really our church is for one neighborhood, one mission, and that's Poe Mill. So we're going to try to go a little bit more focused crowd is the better way to put it. Maybe not a small crowd, but a focused crowd of the neighborhood, and I think it'll go even better than it's ever gone uh, this year. But to do that, we do need some funds, and by God's grace, we have um, plenty to uh, do this uh, event, but we do need to vote it in for that purpose. So uh, we're going to consider ourselves in business. We'll just go ahead and consider it. We're in. And I need to do a quick business meeting to vote in about $1,000. Actually, let's go ahead and be specific, $8,000 to uh, uh, throw the block party because um, that's about a good cap for us. We may not spend all of it, but we don't want to have to, you know, re-vote if we spend 1001 right? So let's just, this is a good number. Talked about this with the deacons last Sunday in the deacons meeting should cover the bounce houses and anything else we need. Like we probably buy $300 worth of candy. Don't we miss our Linda? So, you know, we go to Sam's club and we leave with Sam's club. It's a beautiful thing. And we just get all the candy and it's a good time. And so, um, I'd like to motion to vote in spending $1,000, about $25,000 in our account right now. Um, I think the bank statement is on the board, but we do have open books if you ever want to see the bank statements. But um, I think it's about $25,000 in our account, so $1,000 is easily doable. I'd like to make a motion to vote this in for this purpose. Sarge is a first. Andrew got my second. All those in favor say hallelujah. 
I guess I'll ask anybody opposed, say, I'm opposed. I don't know. <laughs> so, we're not reaching the neighborhood this month. Um, no, I'm just kidding. But anyway, I'm joking. I'm teasing. You're always welcome to oppose. But I am uh, glad to say we're going to spend $1,000 on this as a church. Thank you for your giving. It comes in handy, and it comes in for ministry, and it comes in for the glory of God. So thank you for your generosity. Let's go ahead and just consider ourselves out of business, that kind of business, and into another kind of business, a more, uh, a more divine and a more eternal business, the business of the Word. So let's look at Genesis chapter 25. Genesis 25, talking about Jesus and Esau. So in chapter 25, the baton of patriarchy is being passed from Abraham to Isaac. Abraham dies at the beginning of this chapter, and he leaves his entire inheritance to Isaac. And so now Isaac is in leadership in the family. He's the new patriarch. He's the new Abraham, as it were, covenant son, the chosen son, to bring about the Abrahamic covenant. And even though, real quickly, in chapter 25, there's a new generation at play, Isaac, it's already going to focus on the next generation that'll come to play. And so today, we're already going to be focusing on Isaac's two boys, Jacob and Esau. And what we'll see in this chapter and in the next several chapters to come is another sibling rivalry playing out. Right? So we've had several in the book of Genesis. We've had um, Cain and Abel. We've had Shem and Ham, Isaac and Ishmael. This week we're getting to Jacob and Esau. And we haven't even gotten to Joseph and his brothers which is like a daytime talk show drama to the max. And Joseph gets a very beautiful I told you so moment. Can't wait to share that with you. Um, of course, at the rate we're going, that's like chapter 40-something. It'll be by the time your kids graduate college. But it, it, it will be a while before we get there. But that's going to be epic. But yeah, today's story is about a sibling rivalry and the stories that follow it. And like all these other stories in Genesis about sibling rivalry, this story will lead us to understand who is next in this chosen line. Who is next to be the patriarch that keeps the promise? Who's the next chosen son? We've seen this all throughout the book. Noah's son Shem was chosen. Abraham's son Isaac was chosen. And today in the text you'll see that Jacob is chosen and not Esau, even though Esau was the firstborn. So let's go through the text, and we'll see how this unfolds. And when we go through these things, we want to keep two things in mind, the broad scale and the narrow scale, the broad application and the narrow application, because each of these stories has both. There's two, right? So the broad application, the broad scale, the story's in here to show us, like we said, the next patriarch in the line of the seed of Eve, as Genesis 3 puts it. The next in line to lead the people of God, to form the nation of Israel, and to bring about Jesus, the Savior, who will crush the head of the serpent, found in Genesis 3. And on a more narrow scale, a more daily scale, like a smaller scope, these lessons, or sorry, these stories, rather, teach us important lessons about ignoring and, and, and running and, and defying the serpent. 
They teach us daily lessons on living close to the tree of life, what we ought to do and what we ought not to do. And so today from reading the story about Esau, I think we learn not to profane sacred things. Not to profane sacred things. And so let's go through it. Um, Genesis 25, let's start in verse 19. Best place to start is at the beginning. Here's the beginning of this text, this story. It says this, the genealogy of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham begot Isaac. Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, his wife. Okay, go down to verse 21. Now Isaac pleaded with the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his plea and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. So not only is sibling rivalry this huge deal in the book of Genesis, but so are these fertility issues, right? Just like Abraham and Sarah struggled to conceive, Isaac and Rebekah struggle to conceive. For Abraham and Isaac, it's 25 years, and the story takes several chapters to tell. Um, I'm sorry, for Abraham and Sarah. For Isaac and Rebekah, it's about 20 years, so almost the same amount of time, only in this case, it mentions it to us in like one sentence. It's just the way the writer wanted to emphasize what he wanted to emphasize. But nonetheless, Isaac and Rebekah struggled just like Abraham and Sarah struggled to have children, even though the promise on them, interestingly, was all about having kids who have kids who have kids who have kids who have, kids who have a nation, eventually a savior coming from that nation. But here we are with more infertility issues. You might be wondering, what is up with all this talk about infertility? Why do all these people struggle with infertility? What's all these stories about infertility doing in the book of Genesis? And here's my hypothesis. I believe it's God showing us that he is the one behind all of this. With Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Esau, Judah, Joseph, all these guys coming, it might be easy to think that this is some sort of super family, that this is some sort of gene pool that has just uh, got some extra spark to it, that these are just great people doing great things, that these are uh, abnormally uh, super spiritual folks. And what God wants to see is, no, it's not about these guys. It's not about these people. It's not even really about these patriarchs or this nation. It's about me, that I am the one bringing forth salvation into this world. These people, Abraham and Isaac so far, they're not even normal. They're at a disadvantage. And yet God is coming to them in their disadvantage, and he is using that to show off that they can't have a baby on their own. They cannot bring about the covenant on their own. They can't keep the promise on their own. They can't bring about salvation on their own, but God is doing it for them. So I believe that the reason all these infertility struggles are happening and are recorded for us in the scriptures is to show us that God is really the one sending in the seed of Eve to crush the head of the serpent. He's the one saving humanity. He's the one saving us. It's all him. So there's a mini sermon in here for us, isn't there, right? So you take your disadvantage and you can despise it or you can embrace it as a chance for God to prove to you that he's the one working in you and for you. Isaac and Rebekah, they struggle with infertility. So Isaac runs to the Lord, he prays, and God grants his prayer. Children, and this is a one sentence, but imagine it, if you will. This is a great blessing it's a great gift. Kids are inheritance from the Lord. They are a gift and a blessing and grace from the Lord. All of that is true. Amen. 
But as the story unfolds, you also see and are reminded that kids are sinners. If you need any evidence, go down to kids' ministry right now and meet my kids. You'll see. Total depravity is an understatement. Okay? They're sinners. And so as we keep going, we see a little bit of how this is going to play out with two boys that are sinners. Right? So, but the children, this is verse 22, struggled together within her. And she said, if all is well, why am I like this? <laughs> it's a hilarious comment, I'm just saying. Right? Okay, I'm having kids, but what is going on with my body? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb, two peoples that shall be separated from your body. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger, or the younger will be preeminent and prominent, the second born. So Rebecca is pregnant, and she's excited. She's going to have ba- a baby. That's what she thinks, right? And she gets to, let's say, about 20 weeks, and so she starts to feel some kicks. And she calls for Isaac, like, Isaac, come here, it's kicking, he's kicking. And Isaac comes over, and they're all giddy, and they're smiling, and they're giggling, and he puts his hand on her belly, and sure enough, there's a kick, and it's just this great moment. And then there's another kick, and another kick, and then like 40 more kicks. There's like a whole rugby team in there. And now uh, Isaac and Rebecca are pretty concerned, right? Like, that's not normal. If all is well, why am I like this? She knows it's her turn to go pray, so she goes to pray, Lord, what is going on in my womb? And he gives her some prophecy about these kids and how their sin will eventually play out. And the Lord says, you don't have one kid in there. You don't have one baby. You got two, right? Surprise. These are twin boys, and they are already fighting in your womb, in utero, right? I think that's how you say it. They're already going at it, and these boys are going to go at it forever. These guys are going to be the heads of two different nations, and those nations will fight for generations to come. But one of those nations will be the chosen nation, the stronger nation, the nation I'm talking about with Abraham and with Isaac. And it will be founded by the younger twin, the twin that's not the firstborn, but the one that comes out second. So here we get this prophetic word from God to Rebecca about something she probably isn't going to see much of fulfilled in her lifetime. In fact, a lot of this will be fulfilled after her death. So she may never get to fully see it, but I want you to fully see it and how this prophecy unfolds. And to do that, you really have to read the entirety of the Old Testament, even some parts of the New Testament. If you continue reading in Genesis, the rest of the Bible as well as a whole book put together, here's what you'll see about this prophecy in a nutshell. Lots of ups and downs and ins and outs, but let me give you the gist. The first child, the first twin is Esau. And he is the father of the Edomites, okay? So he is going to lead a place called Edom. He is the firstborn child. He's in this position, this important position that would naturally lead him, you would think, to be the heir of Abraham's covenant, the father of this multitude. Remember the stars of the sky and the sand of the sea and all these people, that he would be the forefather of the nation that brings about the serpent-crushing son That's what he's set up to be, but something is going to happen. That instead, he will be the father of Edom, and they won't win any war. 
They will lose. They won't crush the head of the serpent. They are actually going to be crushed by the serpent eventually. The second child, the second twin is Jacob, and he's going to be the father of Israel rather than the firstborn. In fact, Jacob later, before we even close the book of Genesis, his name is going to be changed to Israel. And even though he's not the natural firstborn son, he's going to be the supernatural heir of this covenant between God and Abraham, now God and Isaac. It'll be between God and Jacob. Thus, Jacob is going to be the forefather of Israel. They, Jacob and his descendants, will be the seed of Eve who brings about Jesus to crush the head of the serpent. And along the way, they will crush Edom as well. This is the prophecy given by God to Rebekah, right? Go ahead, put this in their baby book. This is what's going to happen. God already knows the decisions that these boys will make. He already knows the circumstances that will play out. He already knows the hearts that these two men will eventually have cultivated. He already knows. And in the next verse, we start to see just a glimpse of how right he is. Even in their birth, there is a signal to this prophetic word coming true. Look at verse 24. It says, So when her days were fulfilled for her to give birth, indeed, there were twins in her womb. And the first came out red. He was like a hairy garment all over. Thank you, Moses, for this detail, right? We got a Wookiee from Star Wars here. So they called his name Esau, which just means red. And afterward, his brother came out, and his hand took hold of Esau's heel, so his name was Jacob. And Jacob in the Hebrew is very close to the Hebrew word heel. They almost sound identical, almost sound the same. And it's very interesting that this was his name because it can mean a couple of things. It can mean something virtuous, like protector, someone that has your back, but it could also mean something deceptive, like trickster, someone going behind your back. And we'll see that he lives up to the latter definition of the name quite often in his story. So Jacob comes out second born, actively trying to get ahead, actively trying to cut in line. And it's this signal that the prophecy is in effect. Okay? So that's how it started. Let's see how it's going. Verse 27 little snippet of their um, uh, growing up, it says this. So the boys grew, verse 27, the boys grew, and Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field. But Jacob was a mild man or a plain man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. So we got polar opposites and partial parents. How do you think this is going to go? I mean, this is a recipe for drama if I have ever seen one, right? It's going to take 10 episodes of Dr. Phil to straighten this out. You got these two kids that come out. They are polar opposites. Does anybody have maybe a family like that where the kids in the family, they are from the same parents, but you would not know it because they are totally different. Those siblings are nothing like each other. A lot of people experience this. I know my two, Marin and Alden, they are different, right? Marin tramples flowers. Alden smells the flowers. Marin leaves dirty laundry all over the house. Alden actually does his laundry, and he's five. Marin, she's a direct communicator. 
she looks right at you and says, no. Alden is an indirect communicator who suggests a few other things besides what you've suggested. And when you don't pick his suggestion, he holds a grudge. Passive aggressive. Marin's just aggressive. Right? They're, they're two kids, totally opposite. And that's what we see in this story. These are two totally different people at the end of the day. Esau, he grows up, and he's basically like a guy from Duck Dynasty, right? He's uh, winning every season of Survivor, and he doesn't even know he's a contestant, right? He's a man of the field. He's eating what he kills. He's living off the land. He's not a Boy Scout. He's a Man Scout, right? This is, this is Esau. Isaac loves Esau. It's not that Isaac doesn't love Jacob at all. It's his son, but Isaac rather hang out with Esau. You see what I'm saying? Because he's firing up the grill and talking about killing things, and that's what Isaac is into. And then you got Jacob. This is a man after my own heart. He loves the great indoors, right? You can see him in the tent. He's an avid reader, sipping iced coffee, thinking about politics and their implications. And his mom, Rebecca, loves it. And it's not that she doesn't like Esau at all. She likes when he goes out and, you know, gets a deer and cooks for the family and all that. But she'd rather hang out with Jacob. She loves Jacob because they can dwell together in the tent and talk about deep things and play board games or whatever they would have done back then. They have these favorites, polar opposites and partial parents. And there's a sermon in here somewhere about parenting, isn't there? about not playing favorites. It's natural for us to gravitate towards certain personalities, even amongst our kids, but we have got to be careful to steward our parenting and to not let even a glimpse of that show and to be careful to manage our emotions and to manage our affections, to treat kids as equally image bearers of God and our responsibility to raise up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. We should never play favorites. It's going to cause huge problems in this family for the next several chapters of the book of Genesis. That's definitely a point in the text. But I don't know that it's the point. It's not the main point. What's the main point? Well, really, all of this is building up to the main point. It's all building up to this story at the end of the chapter with this great lesson in it for us. We read about it in verse 29. It says this, Now, Jacob cooked a stew. And Esau came in from the field, and he was weary. And Esau said to Jacob, Please feed me with that same red stew, for I am weary. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Edom means red. The stew was red. Some wordplay in the Hebrew. Verse 31, But Jacob said, Sell me your birthright as of this day. And Esau said, Look, I'm about to die. So what is my birthright to me? Then Jacob said, swear to me as of this day. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. And Jacob gave Esau bread and stew of lentils. And Esau ate and drank, arose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Very interesting. That's quite a story. That's, I mean, just a fascinating record of what seems like uh, just kind of a quick but consequential scene of these two young men. 
Have you ever looked at the story before and wondered, why is that in there? Or what's the big emphasis? Or what's all this talk about stew and birthrights doing in the Bible? And why is this a big deal when it's just one night, like some Tuesday night where Esau's hungry? What's going on here? Well, let's take a look at the characters uh, that both play a part in this debacle, Jacob and Esau. But then let's focus in on Esau because he's the more prominent character in the story. So let's take, though, a second to look at Jacob. Jacob is interesting because here's the thing. Jacob actually is desiring something noble. He wants to be the firstborn. He wants the inheritance. He wants the blessing. And there's actually something kind of good about that. However, it's clear he's not acting in good faith. Right? In fact, some have speculated that this is like a planned, calculated thing. This is a maneuvered moment. It's like he knows Esau hasn't been killing anything as of late. The hunting season's over, and Esau's been coming in upset and hungry every night, and that he is making this stew at the right time when his brother's going to be at this most emotional state and most fatigued state, and he is going to get his brother into a negotiation. I mean, doesn't this seem to come right off the tip of his tongue? Like, hey, can I have some of that red stew? Give me your birthright. <laughs> Not... Sure, brother, you've cooked for us so many times with your wild game. The least I could do is give you some stew. No, he's like, hey, how about this? Let's exchange very important legal documents. Get it notarized. Right, this is very calculated, some speculate, not just off the cuff, but rather absolutely um, a planned out moment. Give me your birthright and I'll give you this stew. And you're hungry, just get rid of the birthright, you get the stew, but no, swear it to me. See, he knows Esau is less than a visionary. He's not thinking about the next generation, he's thinking about the next hunt. He knows that Esau is sort of a knucklehead who can't calculate and figure out how big of a deal this is to some degree, and he's living up to his name Trickster, right? Give me your birthright, swear to me. No fine print, no details, no, uh, no, ex you know, just sign the contract, blank check, swear it to me as of this day. He's living up to his name, isn't he? He's deceptive and he's tricked and he's, he's at not acting in good faith. And you're going to see that this is kind of a theme of Jacob as we talk about him through the rest of the book of Genesis as he becomes quite a prominent character. Today, though, we're not going to look at the sin of Jacob as much. We're going to look at the sin of Esau more because that's really what's being highlighted. Because though Esau is being taken advantage of, he is also in great sin. He's also in great apathy. He's also making some decisions that this is on purpose and that he's being held accountable. You see, here's Esau. Esau actually has something noble, right? He has the blessing. He has the birthright. He has the inheritance coming to him. He has this prominent position as the firstborn. He has the covenant of God. He's next in line. And he could not care less. Now, as an English reader... Perhaps at first you might be tempted to think that this is almost legit, like he's really going to die. Because in verse 32 he says, well, I'm about to die, so what good is a birthright to me? But a little thought 
and study into this, you find this is pure exaggeration. Literally, scholars will tell you this is literally like a teenage boy who comes home from soccer and hasn't had a snack for a few hours, and he runs into the kitchen. He's like, Mom, I am starving. Right? You guys ever, you have a teenage brother like that? Are you that brother? Mom, right? I'm starving. It's like, son, starving people can't run into kitchens. Did you know that? They don't have a kitchen around. Starving people can't proclaim, I'm starving. They're on the floor, shriveled up, taking their lives. You're not starving. And that's the idea of Esau, is he's being extra dramatic. He is being uh, emotional. All, all of his failure to hunt that day is playing into this, that he is tired and that he is sweaty and that he wants to eat and he wants to eat right now. Really, this isn't a text that is exposing just how much he wants to eat, but rather it's exposing how little he cares about his birthright. He gives it up quickly and freely without any stipulation. He doesn't care in the slightest. I mean, if he was really starving, he would just knock Jacob over and save his own life by taking the stew. Like if it was really gonna, if he's gonna die, he would figure out a way. But he doesn't want to knock Jacob over because he doesn't want mom and dad involved because he doesn't want to argue or get into drama. He just wants to eat and feel better quick, now, immediately. And if all it takes is giving you this worthless piece of paper that says I'm the firstborn of this worthless family, then fine, take it and feed me. The text makes sure to highlight this, that even after he eats and drinks, he doesn't ask for a renegotiation. He doesn't go tell uh, on Jacob to Isaac. He just goes back out into the field like nothing happened because to Esau, who cares so little about this birthright, nothing did happen. And this is a big, huge deal, massive deal with massive implications because of what the birthright was. Remember the mega theme of the book of Genesis. It's one book, and the whole book of Genesis is unfolding a promise, the keeping of a promise by God to us, given to us at the beginning of the book. Remember Genesis 3, right after the fall, right after Adam and Eve sinned, right after we listened to the serpent, the scriptures tell us in Genesis 3.15 that there will be a seed of the serpent. There will be people deceived by the serpent who follow the serpent, who obey the serpent. There will be a seed of the serpent. Yet there will be a seed of Eve. There will be a people who are redeemed from the serpent, rescued from the serpent. Eve is the mother of all the living. Though the serpent brought death, some will live and live forever. And eventually what will happen is through this line of Eve, there will come a seed or a son who crushes the head of the serpent and destroys the devil in all his work. Genesis 3.15, God said to the serpent, I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed, and it shall bruise thy head. And we know on this side of history that the serpent-crushing son is Jesus. He crushes the head of the serpent through his bloody cross and his empty tomb. He destroys the works of the devil. And he's the one who makes us into the living and grants us eternal life. 
And the story of Genesis is the story of how that began, how we got from Adam and Eve to the nation of Israel and eventually the bloody cross and empty tomb, the work of Jesus and the crushing of the serpent. And what the author is doing, this guy named Moses, is he is showing us how we got from point A to point B exactly. Under the inspiration of the Spirit, he is pointing out the exact transfer from Eve to Jesus, person by person, generation gener- after generation, son to grandson to great-grandson, he is showing us the exact line of Israel and the serpent-crushing seed, the seed of Eve. So, I am not being hyperbolic when I say that in despising his birthright, Esau is despising the gospel, Esau's birthright is almost literally, if not literally, the good news in this time frame and in this moment. Esau is the next in the covenant family, the next in line, and he knows it. If you add up all the genealogies and do the work, you'll see Abraham was actually alive for most of Esau's childhood. And no doubt, Grandpa Abraham shared all the crazy stories with him of the covenant and of the promises and of the miracles. Isaac is his father. There's no doubt Isaac shared with Jacob and Esau. All right, boys, sit down. Let me tell you the story of the family. We were in South Babylon, and God called Grandpa to move, and you had this crazy uncle named Lot that we're trying to write out of the story because he's the worst, and, and the Sodom and Gomorrah where he lived is gone because God is a God of justice, and now you know, we moved to Egypt once for a famine. That did not go well. Do not ask about Aunt Hagar. We don't talk about her. Right? Like He's going through the story. And what the picture that you get is Jacob, the second born, is listening in rapt attention. And Esau, the first born, is like rolling his eyes, wondering when story time is going to be over. And as they grow up, we see Esau being the next to have a story, the next to carry on the covenant of God that will redeem the world, and he doesn't care. Esau's birthright, it's almost literally the gospel in this time period, and yet Esau treats it like a note written on the back of a napkin. And so this story about stew and about birthrights is in here to show us two things. One, the major point of the story, like we've been saying, is to show us the next in line of the seed of Eve. It's going to be the second born, not the first. It's going to be Jacob and not Esau. Though Esau was naturally ready to receive the covenant he was born, Jacob is going to be the one who supernaturally receives the covenant. He is the one who's going to eventually be born again. Now, it's not that Jacob is a good guy, and Esau is a bad guy. You can tell from the story they're both bad guys, but Jacob is the one that is going to desire God and wrestle with God and walk with God eventually. And so one of the big points of the story is Moses is showing us that the Savior to look for is going to come from the line of Jacob, not Esau, Israel, and not Edom. But another point of the story one that's more daily for us, one that's more ready for us and available for us in the here and now is that this is a great warning for us not 
to commit ourselves the sin of Esau. Turn to Hebrews chapter 12. Turn to Hebrews chapter 12. So what was the sin of Esau? The sin of Esau is that what was to be held sacred, he profaned. Esau profaned the sacred. To be profane is to take what is sacred and then treat it as common. And how we experience this on a daily basis is in our language. We call it profanity. It's the idea of taking sacred words and using them as swear words. And that's wrong, but that's not exactly what's going on with Esau. Esau is not just doing this with words about God. In essence, he's doing this with God's word. He's doing this with God's gift, with God's blessing, with God's position that he's given him, with the inheritance God has allotted to him. He takes something that is to be highly regarded and he disregards it. That's what it means to be profane. Thus Esau despised his birthright. That's the great sin of Esau. And here's the crushing truth for us, the convicting truth for us this morning, is that without intervening grace, we are Esau. Left to our own flesh and our own devices, I'm Esau. I stand before you as Esau without Jesus. You are Esau. Esau, he regards the wrong things as sacred, the immediate, the fleshly, the momentary, the temporal, the red stew. And we do the same thing. For some of you, it's not stew, it's golf clubs. It's me time. It's comfort. It's reputation, but it's something that's not sacred, and you hold the wrong thing as sacred. Esau disregards the wrong things. He profanes the divine and the eternal and the heavenly, and we do the same thing. And there are consequences for our profaneness. And that consequence is that there may be no trading back. There may be some trading back. There may be slow trading back by God's grace, but... There may be no trading back on this side of eternity. That's the point of this story. In fact, this is the warning given to us about Esau in the New Testament of the Bible in the book of Hebrews. Check this out. This is a stunning warning. It's a stark warning. This is a scary warning. Hebrews 12, 16 and 17. Check this out. It says, Lest there be any immoral or profane person among you as Esau who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. For you know that how, afterward, when he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. Wow. That's a tough text. That's quite the warning. Basically, eventually in Genesis, you'll see that Esau realizes what he has done. That he comes to terms with what happened the night of the red stew and the trading of the legal document and the birthright he gave up. I don't know that he ever understood the spiritual side of this. Perhaps he at some point did. But I bet he understood the financial side of this when he got older. 
You see, this birthright thing, there was a whole spiritual side to it, like we just said, but there's also a whole financial side to it. I mean, literally, this would have been, for twin boys, two-thirds of the wealth of Isaac. And we know that Isaac's wealth was Abraham's wealth, and Abraham was treated like a king by other kings because Abraham's so wealthy. So quite literally, this, was, this birthright was worth millions of dollars. And he trades it for a to-go order from Panera. Stew, bread, now. And I think eventually, I believe later in the story, he figures this out and he wants to go back. He wants to trade back the momentary for the long term, the comfort for the covenant, the, 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 in the moment for the inheritance. He wants to go back and trade back and get that blessing of the firstborn. But you will see in a story to come that it is too late. No matter how much he begs, no matter how much he cries, no matter how much he tries, no matter how much he sighs, For him, he gives away his birthright. He swears it away. He despises it. And thus he loses it. For Esau, there's no tradebacks. Here are the consequences for being profane. What you disregard, you will eventually discard, and you may never get it back. See, that sounds scary. It's supposed to, it's a warning. We're supposed to learn from this story an incredibly important life lesson. Do not profane that which is sacred. So here's the question. What do we tend to profane? First and foremost, we need to learn this on the eternal scale, the eternal level. That's the main application of the text. That this is an eternal matter, eternal covenants are in in play, eternal things, right? So here's one application for you. If you profane the gospel, rather than holding it as sacred, believing it and embracing it and trusting it, you may never get a chance to accept the gospel. I mean, just think of the Pharisees who had Jesus killed. They were so profane. You remember what they held sacred? It wasn't stew for them. It was Sabbaths. Right? They, they regarded the Sabbath rather than man. They regarded the Sabbath rather than Jesus, the Lord of the Sabbath. On the Sabbath day, there came to Jesus a man with a withered hand. He said, if thou wilt, thou could make me clean. And Jesus said, I will. And his hand became whole. And then immediately after that, it says that the Pharisees colluded with the Herodians, the government, on how they might destroy him. What could be more sacred than Jesus? Who's more sacred than Jesus? And yet they despised him. These were the sons of God. These were Jewish guys. These were the guys the Old Covenant, the Old Testament produced, and they despised their birthright. And they profaned that which was sacred. They traded Jesus in, not just for stew, but for them it was for seats in the synagogue. It was for robes, the finest robes the tailor could make. It was for a taste of political power. It was for the moment, for now, for here, for the flesh. And they had the Son of God crucified. Their only hope for eternal salvation. He dies on the cross in their place for their sins. He then rises again. And still, for many of those Pharisees, there was no repentance. Though they say they were seeking the Messiah, they never found him, though he was right in front of them. Though they say they were seeking eternal life, they never got there because they never embraced him. 
You see, there are dire consequences for what we disregard when it comes to the sacred. And if you profane the gospel, you may never get to believe the gospel. So repent and come to Jesus now and accept your birthright as a son of God, a daughter of God. Amen? Do not profane the gospel. Believe the gospel and treasure the gospel. Don't trade it for anything. But we also got to talk about this on a daily level. I know many of you do believe the gospel and you have accepted the gospel, but there's still a warning here for us. What are the things that God has called sacred that you tend to profane? How about marriage? Did you know that marriage is sacred? It's sacred. It is of God, from God. Paul tells us it's a mystery that reveals God as the husband loves his wife like Christ loves the church. It is, a, it is a direct reflection of our salvation. Marriage is sacred, and yet we profane it in all kinds of ways, sometimes small, sometimes large, when we treat it as anything less than a sacred vow. The family is sacred. The family of God, it shows off God as well. The parents are supposed to be raising the children, the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. And yet we ignore the kids, and the kids ignore the parents. And we profane that which is sacred when we profane the family. Devotions, right? You will meditate therein day and night. Pray without ceasing. He told a parable unto this end, men ought always to pray and not to faint. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. And we trade it in for another hour on the phone, for another hour of work, another hour of bed, sleep, another hour of Netflix, whatever it is, and, it, and we profane the sacred. Here's one. What about our spiritual gifts? For those of you who don't know, when you get saved, the Lord actually gives you the Holy Spirit gives you supernatural talents to serve the body of Christ and to reach the world. It's amazing. And your spiritual gifts, these talents, this calling the Lord has given you, it's literally sacred. It's from the Holy Spirit. And yet sometimes we profane these gifts. I'll give you a couple ways we do it. One of the ways we do it is we never figure out what it is. It's kind of a interesting phenomenon, isn't it? You get saved and you learn. The Lord has given you. The Bible says that, and I think it's 1 Corinthians 10, 11, 12, somewhere in that, that ballpark, right, that he has given gifts to the church. Each one of you has a gift. Use it. And yet, though it's a gift, we don't find it. When if anything else is a gift, we become private investigators. Right? Some of you around Christmas time are private eyes speaking Sneaking, you're shaking packages, weighing stuff, hacking into your parents' Amazon account. Got to figure out what these gifts are. You're like in your 30s and you still do this. Okay, this is me. All right, it's me. I do this. I'm preaching to me. But it's true. We want to, what's the gift? I remember, this is a true story. Last year, in my mailbox, I got a mailer from a car dealership in Greer saying that a gift was waiting for me come up to this car dealership. I had won something or whatever. And so I drove to this car dealership in Greer. Man, I went all the way up Wade Hampton. I mean, that thing goes forever. And I'm going way up Wade Hampton. I come to this car dealership, and I'd show them the mailer. And they say, oh, yeah, that's you. Okay, come on, sit down. And they give me this whole sales pitch. And I listen to the whole sales pitch. 
like half an hour. I'm like, no thanks, but I'll take the gift. And they say, oh, okay, well, here's the gift. They go to the office and they come back and it is a Walmart gift card for $2. (laughs) I couldn't even look this guy in the eye. It's like, how do you give a guy two? Yeah, I spent more than $2 to drive down Wade Hampton on gas. Right? I mean, have you seen the economy? $2? It's like, what am I going to buy for two? It probably costs more than $2 to print out this card. I can't even go buy the Advil I'm going to need to take to go to Walmart, let alone use this at Walmart. Yet I drove all the way down there. Drove all the way back to figure out what's the gift. And yet God, in his power, in his sovereignty, when we get saved, he has sent to us a calling. You know that God has a purpose and a plan for your life. And that purpose and that plan is to be like Jesus. And there's some things we're all called to. And then there's going to be some things specifically for you that unfold. A spiritual gift for you. And some of you, your next step with Jesus is just to figure out what has God wired me to do? You don't have to know the theologian stuff behind it, big words. Is it for today, not for today? All you need to do is pray. You don't even need to know the specific word. Just, Jesus, what have you talented me, gifted me to do? What are you calling me to do? And seek it until you find it. Because if you seek, you will find. If you search for him with all your heart. Another way we profane the spiritual and the spiritual gifts is that we discover our spiritual gifts and then we don't use them. It's like when someone gets you something for Christmas and then you have to go find it, dig it out, and put it on the shelf because you know they're coming over six months later. You don't want them to know, oh, that's been in a closet. We do this with the gifts of God. Some of you do this. Well, I do this. We do this. We know our spiritual gifts, but we do not use them. Some of you know your gift is administration, but you choose delegation, right? Someone else will do it. Your gift is serving behind the scenes, but you'd rather be behind a screen. Your gift is the gift of evangelism, but you prefer television. You're supposed to speak like a prophet, but instead you're worried about making a prophet. I got a dozen of these, right? I can keep, right? I got, your gift is discernment, but you only use it for your fantasy football team. Gift of mercy, but you're in a hurry. Gift of faith, but you're unfaithful. Word of knowledge, but you're busy with college. Okay, I'll stop, but you, you get the idea. I'll stop, but you get the idea. We pick the warm, comforting stew. We want the stew over our spiritual gifts, the short-term, the short-lived, the simple, for the sacred. And it's possible that there will come a day where we will not be able to trade in our indifference for making a difference. We are Esau, and we need to be aware that there's consequences for this. We have to be aware not to profane sacred things or to hold sacred profane things because at some point a trickster, a Jacob is going to come along and he is going to trade us something for something sacred, and there may be, it may be, that there's no trade backs on this side of eternal life. That's the warning of Esau. So what do we do? What's the hope? Our only hope is to follow Jesus. In Jesus' life, oh, this is beautiful. I love this. In Jesus' life, he was basically faced with the same scenario as Esau. It's amazing. 
We read about this in Matthew 4 and his temptation. Unlike Esau, he actually was starving. He fasted 40 days. And like Esau, a trickster, a deceiver, came to offer him a trade, and he offered him food, right? Turn those rocks into bread. Profane the name of your father. Bow down and worship me. Despise your birthright, and you'll be feeling better in moments, instantly. And your flesh will be at ease, and, and you'll have all the kingdoms of the world. And yet, he would not profane the sacred. He withstood his test. He refused the devil, and the devil fleed from him, and angels came and ministered to him. Jesus succeeded where Esau failed. Jesus succeeded where we fail. Jesus is this only one, this only person to perfectly regard what was to be regarded and thank God the Father, God the Son, and the Spirit that one of the things he regarded was you. Out of his reverence for God, out of his reverence to glorify God, he took on the sacred task to rescue you, the profane people that have sinned against him. And Jesus goes to the cross and he takes all of our profanity on himself that we might be made sacred. Though we were, and I was, you were, we were all so quick to despise our birthright. We were quick to trade our birthright. Jesus runs to the cross to give us his. That we might have an eternal inheritance, an inheritance we were born to have. So our only hope is to embrace Jesus. If you will hold Jesus as sacred above all other things, you will hold all sacred things in their right place and profane none of them. And if you will follow Jesus, you will follow him into a life that regards what is to be regarded and disregards what is to be disregarded. You will not be profane, and you will be the firstborn, and you will be chosen, and you will be part of the covenant, and you will walk with him in this life and in the life to come, in eternal life. So hold on to Jesus and his gospel. Do not trade him in for anything. Do not despise him. Do not let him go. Do not profane the sacred. That's the lesson we learn from this story of Esau. Let's pray and we'll worship our sacred God. Jesus, help us not to profane the sacred. You are the most sacred. If we hold you in high esteem, everything else will fall in line. Jesus, even now as we sing, we can check our watch. We could check our reservation for lunch. We could think about mowing the lawn later today or what we're going to do this week, and we could profane this sacred moment. Lord, without singing with all our heart, we could profane your church. Lord, help us not to profane that which is sacred, but to hold in high regard all you've called us to hold. Jesus, thank you that you regarded us and that though we have been profane, we're forgiven and free and that though there's consequences on this side, our eternal consequences have for sure been dealt with. And many times we receive mercy in the here and now anyway. And you give us our birthright. And a lot of times you give us stew as well. And we want to say thanks for that. And we'll thank you now with our heart by singing to you and you alone. In Jesus' name, amen.